Hello, party people. Hey, Kara. Oh, wait. Kara's not there. Happy birthday, Kara. Kara's not there, but it is her birthday. Now, this is not a regular episode, so Kara is not there. This is just Chris. And this is an opportunity for us to share with you another great podcast. I had the opportunity to be on the Ark and Ant podcast hosted by Michael Rivera. And I'm sad to say this actually aired way back on October 2nd, 2019. And I'm sorry to say it because I should have shared this with you way back then. It didn't occur to me how valuable of an opportunity it would be to simply ask Michael if I could repost the interview he did with me on the Sausage of Science podcast because we're all so busy that it's really difficult to remember that we can do something as easily as repost each other's podcasts and cross-fertilize the world of scientific podcasting and anthropological podcasting. Michael Rivera is amazing. I say that as someone who did back in 2019, episode 54, and I believe he's now up to episode 119. He keeps a podcasting pace that is unmatched. More about Michael. He's a, this is straight from his ARC and Ant podcast bio. You can find that at ARC and Ant spelled out. A-R-C-H-A-N-D-A-N-T-H dot com site where all the episodes can be found. Dr. Rivera is a Filipino-Chinese archaeologist, anthropologist, and podcaster born and raised in Hong Kong who recently got his PhD in biological anthropology and has been working his ass off podcasting. So I want to thank him for taking the time out to interview me about my research on tattooing um, and immune response in Samoa um, for hosting a long interview in which I have many, many words, which generally get, fortunately for you, edited by our um, uh, producers, um, and for posting this in a really timely fashion, which we had not been able to do until we caught up with ourselves just recently. So without further ado, I give you me as hosted by Dr. Michael Rivera. Thanks, Michael. And again, find all the great work and the four field anthropology he's posting at arcandanth.com. Welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and this is the podcast about people, about history, biology, and cultures. Today, we have another expert on the show, biocultural and medical anthropologist and fellow podcaster, Christopher Lin. Chris, are you there? I'm here, Michael. Thanks for having me on. And thank you so much for being a guest. Where are you calling in from today? I am in my office at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Alabama today. Wow. Uh, and, and so, you know, you must have been on the other end of the podcasting relationship before, right? Like, how do you feel right now? Uh, yeah, it, it is a little weird because I'm used to being the one who reassures everyone else about how the editing process works and, <laughs> and, and uh, all that. So, it, you know, um, 
it's nice to be on either side of it and get that perspective. Mm -hmm. So let's start to dig into your your research and your experiences. So my first question is, when when you were younger, what was it that first drew you to the study of anthropology? You know, it's funny because we ask folks this question all the time. And I, I, I admit that I've I've not thought about it so much as in that framing as when I'm younger. Um, I'm a first-gen college hmm. student, so I'd, I'd never heard of anthropology, honestly, um, until well down the road. And in fact, when I was an undergraduate in, uh, at Indiana University, right out of high school, one of my good friends was an anthropology major, and she went on to be, I think her and her sister are, uh, they, in Michigan, they are the ones who sort of run um, implants or transplants, like organ transplant type of stuff, because she was interested in forensics. But it wasn't really until I was actually working in the music industry. I was working at Tower Records in New York City, and I would mm-hmm. I was a retail clerk, and I didn't really like walking around asking customers if I could help them. So I would stand at the magazine rack and read Discover Magazine and National Geographic. And I think it those magazines had always had an appeal to me, but I, I sort of rediscovered them during that period. I had been reading music magazines for a while and sort of found my way back to the kind of magazines my parents had laying around the house. So that's probably what awakened it. And then I, when I went back to finish my undergraduate degree, I went back as a journalism major to write those kinds of pieces and had to choose a minor that was relevant to my interests and took an anthropology class and had one of those professors who just blew my mind and changed yeah. my world. Um, so uh, do you think that any any part of um, your previous work, uh, working in a, in a music record store, uh, has, has made its way into how you think about anthropology? Oh, it's definitely influenced everything. One of the most important life skills I learned through working in the music industry was the value, like what it means when they say it's not what you know, but who you know. And, and, and really what that means is we're a social species and we have uh, ways of relating and transmitting information and all these things that lead up to what we would call success. Success only happens in a social mm-hmm. context. And I learned so much about watching different artists and how different artists became successful, not just through what I was selling, but as an active musician, like the people who became successful, it wasn't just their skill. It wasn't just how much uh, money was behind them, but there was, it was them. They were out there and being social people and getting, without trying to be liked, they were being liked just because they were social mm-hmm. and people liked them and wanted to support them. And I learned that that's, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that will go a long way toward helping you in any endeavor. And, and I've used that hmm. ever since. So what are your thoughts on anthropology's place in, in today's uh, academia or today's society? Like, do you talk to your students a lot about um, current affairs and how, anthropology can be applied to understanding 
the world better or or tackling some of society's major issues at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that's the main thing I do focus on in our classes because 95, 99% of our students are not going to become they're not anthropology majors. They're not going to go on to grad school in anthropology. They're not going to become anthropologists. So what is the value of this discipline and why do we want people to take it? I do spend a considerable time talking about why the principles that we we teach. Uh, and and for, for me right now, I'm teaching intro to biological anthropology. So Human diversity, race as a social construct with biological implications, um, understanding evolutionary mechanisms, not just to understand the history of our species, but to understand the controversies in our society between the the sort of straw man religion and science arguments, uh, primate conservation, why Mm -hmm. those matter. I spend almost all of my time coming back to why they're in the class and what value it will have for the rest of their life. And not about you should know all this because it's important in anthropology. I think anthropology itself is a discipline that is so interdisciplinary. It really sells itself best as a supplement to everything Mm -hmm. else. Sort of preparing them for for the the real world, so to speak, uh, outside of their degrees. Yeah, makes them a more interesting person, makes them a, a, a more critical consumer and critical actor in their own cultures. Mm-hmm. So I know that you have um, traveled to and you've worked in Alabama, as well as Costa Rica and the Pacific Islands. And you were just uh, over the summer in the American Samoa for a field trip. Is that correct? I was in Samoa okay. this year, uh, American Samoa a couple of years ago, but I've worked in the Samoan islands and with the Samoan diaspora for the last, let's say, four four summers. Mm-hmm. Are the Samoans similarly concerned about issues like uh, geopolitics or, or climate change? Yeah, d- definitely. Um, it, and it varies between American Samoa and Samoa. Um, there's a huge, hmm, let's see. There are a lot of issues in the Pacific that stem from the histories of colonialism, that whether it be chronic disease and metabolic issues, or um, they're, they're at the front of some of the flavivirus epidemics that have come through. What took me there in 2016 was they were basically at the, at the bulkhead of the Zika outbreak coming across the Pacific. Um, but one of the things that I noted in Samoa this year, uh, the difference between American Samoa and Samoa is one is an American territory and one is an independent country. Mm-hmm. And Samoa as an independent country has a lot more autonomy, uh, has, all, has, has autonomy in determining its own policies. And they are very conscientious about the impact of climate change on them as an island and their reefs and their natural resources. So one of the things that I noted that they had done recently, that I think needs to spread as a, as a meme, as my kids would say, is uh, banning plastic bags in stores. So not, not, you, you don't just have the option of bringing your own, but you can't get groceries in plastic bags anymore. Right. Which as you can imagine when you're on an island, there's very like the idea of, uh, or the concept of garbage disposal comes into clarity 
like the the problems, the logistical problems of disposing of garbage become very poignant when you're on an island. And I never noticed that till I started working in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Like there were differences between that and uh, what you had seen around in Alabama. Yeah, and anywhere. I mean, I lived in New York for 20 years. So I'm I'm used to uh, communities where maybe garbage disposal is an issue and getting it out and where in New York are the landfills and um, where garbage gets sent. But in Samoa, there's nowhere to send it. It's five hours from any place by plane. Mm-hmm. And all these metal products that came in after World War II in particular are just sitting around um, rusting if they don't have shredders. Right. Um, it costs so much money to get garbage off the island. So it it's a super, super um, intense, poignant concern and one that came into focus, again, as I say, seeing it, but... It's, during the Zika outbreak in particular, we were, we were focused on where are mosquitoes breeding? And there's just so much large industrial Mm -hmm. mechanical metal garbage sitting around that they can't get rid of. Right. And that creates like the stagnant water for the mosquitoes to to breed in. Yeah. There's tons and tons of those repositories. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what were you doing this summer on, on this trip? Were you collecting data of some sort? Were you interviewing people? What were you trying to add to previous previous research that you had done? Yeah. So my my recent project has been looking at tattooing and immune response. I did a very, very small study in Alabama. In, I think it was published in 2016 um, that found that the more tattoos people have, the better their immune response, sort of like exercise or, or vaccine would predict that a short-term stressor mm-hmm. would would have an immunological benefit, which got a lot of great press. But as a, an article in Jezebel pointed out, um, we need to stop going crazy over small studies and use them as the basis for validation studies and, and do better science. And when I was in American Samoa in 2016 on the Zika uh, project, I saw how ubiquitous tattooing still is. It's got a deep and rich history in the Pacific, which I already knew, but I didn't know how active it had been by colonialism. And it turns out that the Samoan Islands have retained much of their tattooing practice. Their culture didn't, it didn't disappear completely during the missionary and colonial period. So for the past few years, I have been returning and then working with Samoans in Seattle in the diaspora community to conduct mm-hmm. uh, validation follow-up studies of that initial study and then to expand it to look at the relationship um, between immune response and not just tattooing but the traditional styles of tattooing does it does the tool type matter uh, does the condition in which people are getting tattoos and the distance they're traveling make a difference because a lot of Samoans travel back to Samoa from wherever their families have moved, be it New Zealand, Australia, Seattle, Alaska, Georgia. Mm-hmm. We see these people traveling to get traditional pea or malu uh, for males and females respectively from these Tafunga Tatatao, which is what they call a traditional tattoo artist, the hand tap style, 
um, which involve a lot of money, a lot of intense time, and frankly, a lot of pain. Right. So there's this really interesting intersection going on with Samoan culture, the popularity of global tattooing, um, and then the persistence of their uh, culture around Mm -hmm. who gets tattooed, why, and what it means. And so it's turned into a beautiful synergy of four field anthropology where I can, I can, I can look at this history for which we have archeological evidence. I can look at these linguistic dimensions in the language and how layered tattooing is in meaning. And I can look at the biological implications and, and how these cultural practices have both facilitated cultural resilience for Samoa inside and outside of the islands and also how the global popularity of tattooing has facilitated that resilience for Samoans. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So uh, Massimo is um, my my partner, whose whose own episode just came out today, actually. Um, but Massimo had a question for you, Chris. Uh, how sure. how do tattooing techniques differ between different societies? Like, how variable is tattooing culture around the world? So currently, globally, the most popular type of tattooing is with an electric electric tattoo machine, and those have been around for just over a hundred years, and it's only in the past. 30 years that sanitation hygiene practices have have shifted to make the tattooing not just faster and easier to implement, but safe to implement. So the current popularity of tattooing is a direct consequence of those technical and cultural shifts. But then you you have a resurgence uh, since the late 1970s in interest Uh, in tattooing as an art form and as a cultural practice. So in most of the world, it's, and and the ubiquity of tattooing everywhere that we see now is due to the electric style and those making it Mm. easier, making it cheaper. You can buy a tattoo kit off of eBay for 40 bucks or less. Um, However, what we see in traditional styles, and I hate to use that term, it's it's a shorthand term, which really means pre-colonial for us because these, these societies were not stagnant. There's no traditional. Um, They're always fluid and interacting with each other. But what you see, and, and I'll use the short, shorthand term because they use it, but, what it, but that's what it means, right? So what you mm-hmm. see in traditional styles that are persistent is in Samoa, for instance, the ow is what actually administers the tattoo and it's a handle uh wood handle with uh previously a carved boar tusk uh needle needles set of needles like a comb attached to a tortoise shell head that was affixed with coconut fiber to the handle mm-hmm. and that was used and tapped with another uh, with a sow, what's called a sow sow with another wooden stick. It's like a drumstick, basically. Mm-hmm. And you see variations of that um, in a lot of different places, especially in the Pacific. You also see the Japanese style where it's simply needles on the end of a stick 
Um, it's sort of like a hand poke, but with a longer applicator. And hand poking is is popular recently, where it's essentially a tattoo needle affixed to a chopstick or something like that, where you can you can poke your own tattoos. You also have tattoos that are administered via sewing, so uh, a thread that's coated in in charcoal or some sort of pigment that's drawn under the skin is a traditional style that you see. Mm. Um, the changes that have happened, and one of the reasons that these styles have become once again, mm, I wouldn't say popular is not quite the word, but they are coming into vogue and you see people professionally practicing a lot of traditional styles or modified traditional styles or hand poking mm -hmm. is because specifically of the, the sanitation and hygiene has uniformly improved. So you see people using gloves, you see cheap disposable needles, you see changes in the tools from those organic materials, which can't be autoclaved, which can't be sanitized, to organic materials, innovations in the tools to retain the feel of the tool, but to be using materials that can be sanitized for safety concerns, both because of, you know, the, the reputations of these artists are dependent on not giving infections to people, right? Because yeah. news spreads and also... Uh, governmental policy, right? That won't let them enter their countries with uh, organic materials. So you have this interesting interaction going on, and a lot of different variation in the in the tool type. Um, but I'd say that's the that's the biggest the, the thing that's allowing this diversity and variation to persist. I hope that mm -hmm. answered your question. I have. Sometimes no. I have too many words, but <laughs> no, that's just re all of that is really fascinating. And I have some friends who who love tattoos, and I know that they're going to you know really love this episode when it goes out. Mm. So, in the research that you've recently done, what sorts of uh, imagery or um, patterns do you find on people's bodies? So, when this goes up, I'm sure we can maybe post the episode with some pictures. But could you describe the the styles in your study populations? Yeah. So, in work, the, the Samoan styles are very prescribed so they they share a distinct look and there is some innovation um, that's allowed for artists but by the for the most part what makes them Samoan is the design so they have mountains and birds and things that resonate of the Pacific and and they're they're symbolic representations of these so you see the pea the the way the pea is done the male Tatao or Malafie is is some of the terms uh, used to describe it. I'll, I'll, I'll back up. So Tatao is just means what is appropriate is one of its terms. And we get the word tattoo from Tatao, mm -hmm. right? What is appropriate is to, to know your culture and to show your... Uh, servitude or your your loyalty to your village and your chief so getting a tatao means getting a payoff means getting the big tattoo for males that goes from your your hip all the way down to your lower below your knee and this is the 
the one that people travel to get. And for females, it's a malu, and a malu means shelter. And the symbols for a malu resemble a variety of different organic elements, but critically the senate cords that hold together shelters, that hold fale or the uh, bungalow-style shelters that are ubiquitous in the Samoan islands. Mm -hmm. So the malu is seen as preparing women for their roles in adulthood and the pain of childbirth. Although I'll be honest, four hours of that versus the 20 hours of the payout, they got them flip-flopped. It's the male (laughs) one that is excruciating. And there's actually a history there. The the mythology around it is that they accidentally got flip-flopped, that Tatao were initially delivered by goddesses for females, but there was some confusion and they ended up giving them to males. The patterns tend to be the same. Um, For the payod, the black work, there's those designs and then heavy, heavy black work, um, which is so extensive that when they were, uh, the Samoan Islands were initially called the Navigator Islands because the Europeans would encounter Samoans out on the open ocean, just sort of seeming to know their way around. And they were, they marveled at that. But when they would see them from their ships on shore, they thought they were all wearing shorts because Mm -hmm. these were so uh, heavy and black work. It looks like folks are wearing shorts. So those designs are, are as far as we can tell, still the same a couple hundred years later. One of the things I learned this summer from uh, Sua Sulawape Patelo Aleva'a, who is the high chief now of tattooing. He is the head of one of two tattooing guilds that have continually operated for the last few hundred years. He says, you're supposed to keep these designs, but what makes a good tattoo artist is someone who can take, because they do mess up sometimes, is can, mm-hmm. who can take a, a screw up and be creative with it and make it work. So there's um, a little symbol of fish that we often see associated with Samoan design, but it was actually created by his brother um, when his brother was given him his pea and they were both teenagers and he screwed up these two V's that came together. And so he just made it into fish and then continued that design. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets picked up and spread. Mm-hmm. So you have this this consistency that makes it recognizable, but then this capacity for innovation as well, which makes it fluid and flexible, right? Uh, I guess an adaptive cultural yeah. practice. You mentioned this aspect of uh, pain that seems to be quite uh, intense and quite like fundamental to the to the tattooing. What do the people that you've met feel about the the pain experience? Um, the pain is. I wouldn't say the preeminent or more important part of it, but it's definitely, it's what gives people pause. Um, so um, th- you're not supposed to get these tattoos if you're not committed to the culture. That's what they mean. And so both because of the importance of the tattoo, but then also because of the trauma to the body, you have to really be prepared for this. It's something that you mentally prepare for. It's something that your family uh, prepares for with you. It's something that your chief and your family bless you to do and then support you through. So one of the, the, the most striking contrasts that 
we noted, and I worked with Dr. Michaela Howells in the American Samoa study. She is the one who actually introduced me to the culture and, and was is my co-author on, on, a, on some of the work that we've been doing. One of the things that we both noticed right out of the gate is that where U.S. tattoo studios are in some ways like U.S. doctor's offices where you, you go and you get dropped off and there may be a waiting room for people to wait while one person or a couple people go in the back and, and it's in and out. The experience with uh, Samoan tattooing is a family affair. The whole family comes down. And in some cases, you have these people who are not even getting tattooed, but are family members who are flying in at great expense to be with their family member who's getting this, this important thing. So it's, it's a significant thing for everybody in the family. And it's a sign of pride. And it means that you, you are an acknowledged and important member of the community. And the pain is part of that. Um, it's not important that it be painful, but it's well known that it's pretty goddamn excruciating. Mm-hmm. And having experienced it on a very, very small scale myself, a little participant observation goes a long way. I can tell you with with the assurance of someone with hundreds of hours of previous like electric and hand poke tattooing that that's the most painful tattoo I've ever gotten by a country mile. And so that, that knowledge of it, that element, they consider it not just important for endurance, but a status symbol of toughness. It really, it really means a lot. It, 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 you, you do have to be tough Mm -hmm to endure that. I wanted to tap out after a minute. It was, it was <laughs> mm-hmm. amazing. So if we're talking about, you know, this toughness, right? How, how exactly are you able to measure their levels of immune response after being tattooed? Yeah. So we look at a couple of things. So the way we started doing it is, is looking at immunoglobulin A, which is an antibody that lines the gastrointestinal and respiratory tract. And it's, it's produced at a, at a rapid high rate but it's metabolically expensive so we're we're constantly producing this this sort of energetically expensive antibody to stave off colds and and all these environmental exposures and what we know from the interaction between the immune system and stress response is that novel stressors are immunosuppressant right so there's a fight or flight uh, interaction with the immune system. The immune system during fight or flight uh, is temporarily suppressed to reallocate energy elsewhere. But your body gets accustomed to stressors that it encounters over and over again. So what we were looking for is, is there an immunosuppressant response in people with getting like their first tattoos or with limited tattoo experience. Mm-hmm. And would we then see this habituation effect uh, in response to tattooing among people who have a lot more? And so we looked at immunoglobulin A at the beginning of a tattoo and then in our early studies at the end, but we realized that people take a lot of breaks and do tattoos over multiple days. So we started doing it an hour in mm-hmm. And so we found in 
the analysis of our first study in Alabama and then our, our follow-up in American Samoa in both cases, an enhanced immune response relative to or positively associated with tattoo experience. So we're seeing this bump and we're, we're also looking at uh, C-reactive protein uh, as an indicator of baseline inflammation, so baseline health, and then looking at cortisol um, because of the role of cortisol and stress mm -hmm. as an immunosuppressant. Those were our results in those two early studies. The third study that we did, which took place in Seattle at the Northwest Tatao Festival, Michaela and I were invited there as the official scientists. Uh, it was all po mostly Polynesian artists doing a variety of different types of tattooing. Those data are still being analyzed, but we were able to collect a volume there. So we went from around 25, 29 people in the first two samples to around 50 in that sample uh, over the course of just a few days. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. And then this past summer, I concentrated on people getting the extensive tattoos. So I worked with the Suluape family in Apia in Samoa, um, and they basically do pea and malu all day, every day, six or you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. So we were collecting samples from people every day as they got these these two week long tattoos. So we're looking at it over time. Another marker that we're looking at, but we haven't I haven't seen the results of yet. I work with immunologist Michael Mullenbein, who's an anthropology professor and chair at Baylor University, who has developed an assay to look it's called a bacteria killing assay, which they they had in for blood samples before, but he and his colleagues developed mm -hmm. a salivary bioassay uh, to measure how much, not just how much immune antibody is present, but how much bacteria or, or pathogen is actually being killed by those uh, immunofactors present. So I'm really excited about that. I have no idea how to analyze it yet or what it's going to look like. I We'll be leaning on Michael heavily to help us understand what we see. Um, but we're w one of the cool things is we're breaking new ground. There's nobody studying tattooing like this. But I think the more important thing is not just that it's tattooing, which people think is interesting, and it, and it is. Um, I think the most recent stat is that around one in four Americans has at least one tattoo, right? So people are getting this thing done to them. They sh it's, it's worth knowing about. But as a short-term cultural stressor, mm -hmm. we can generalize or we can extrapolate or, or transfer the knowledge about tattooing and immune response to any number of short-term stressors that humans engage in that are going to have immunological impacts. And so this is a, it's a really elegant... If I do say so myself, I think a really elegant model for starting to understand embodied culture and being able to measure it in the field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, tattooing is one of the like oldest ways uh, that humans have augmented themselves. And I was wondering, like, what are some other examples of human augmentation that that maybe some of us might not actually see? as as quite special but actually they are you know adding to our capacities to deal with the society around us or deal with the environment around us 
Yeah, it's one of the things I learned as an undergrad taking an anthropology of what's called an anthropology of body modification to get people to sign up for the class. But as my professor, John Beatty, pointed out, it's really the anthropology of body use. So any number of things that we do in our daily life are actually body modifications or modifications of our body that we don't think of that way. Like I wear... I wear, I try to wear comfortable shoes nowadays, but I still have to admit that the older I get, the, the harder it is to find a pair that I can walk around and, and teach in. And my feet hurt all the time. So that stressor, uh, as we go throughout our day, the things that we do to sort of keep ourselves awake or uh, some of the, the minor pains that we experience, they, they accumulate. Every time we go to the dentist, get dental work done. I hate dentists. Those are, I hate the dentist. Yeah. <laughs> the dentist is a nightmare for a lot of us. And I'm a, I'm a dental avoider. And I had a recent experience that I tell my students, I, I probably overshared my classes, but I, I mention it because it's, it's relevant to this, this, this idea that uh, I don't want someone messing around in my mouth, but I waited so long to get this sort of sensitive area of a tooth addressed that that turned out to be a cavity that I broke it on a potato chip, which just sounds ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It was one of those hard nuggets in the bottom of a bag, but still I broke my tooth on a potato chip. I had to get a root canal and then I had to get a crown, all of which was just a nightmare of having someone modifying something that we don't really see, but you have your tongue running over your teeth nonstop. Mm -hmm. And so the, the change in my mouth has me so distracted and the smoothness of that crown just bothers the hell out of me. It doesn't feel like my teeth anymore. Um, Those small things, we think of ourselves as a conscious species, but really what we're thinking about is how Mm -hmm. we feel most of the time. And so that matters. And another quick example is our hair, right? If we're having a bad hair day or our clothes, uh, if I'm wearing clothes that I'm not comfortable in, it drives me to distraction. Our hair and our clothes are really big sources of both change, use, modification, and you know they can be stressful. And that stress doesn't have to be the pain of a tattooing. That just has to be anything that throws mm-hmm. off our game, anything that that dislodges our equilibrium. So there's tattooing is useful for studying because. Like so many things in anthropology, the other, and it studies exotic stuff. One of the reasons that we do that is because sometimes we have to find extreme examples of very, very normal things to uh, to be able to measure them. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to measure the discomfort of running my tongue over my tooth all day or having a bad hair day, but it's much easier to measure the pain of getting a tattoo. It's very circumscribed, right. but, but they, they exist on a spectrum of experience. So somewhat related to this, like I was looking through some of your recent work, like from the last uh, three or five years and, mm-hmm. you know, looking at like the papers that you and your colleagues have, have done. And they were like on things such as if you do improv comedy as a hobby mm-hmm. or regularly, it seems to reduce stress. You know, being given a creative task for extra credit seems to reduce stress in undergraduates. And I'm just sort of amazed to see all the ways in which you and your, uh, you know, your, your co-authors have measured data to show the relationships between 
sort of uh, our behaviors and our environment as well as our health and our well-being and our stress levels. Yeah, so you're talking about some of the work I've done with Kara Ackerbach, who is now at Notre Dame, and some of the work that Michaela Howells has done at UNCW. Um, the model there has been, um, and, and Michaela sort of synthesized this, and I, and I borrowed it. We study cultural impacts on health. Um, I started off doing work on uh, with Pentecostal, uh, apostolic Pentecostals. I wanted to understand trance states and dissociation and altered states of consciousness. And I'm actually writing a book called Transcendental Medication that should be out hopefully, oh, probably by the end of next year, beginning of 2021 uh, with Rutledge called Transcendental Medication. I think the evolution and culture, culture and health of, of healing mm-hmm. or something like that. But the, the point, the, the thing that I was getting at was that, um, and, and this is very similar to the model we used in tattooing, was that the more someone had spoken in tongues, the more practice they had with dissociation um, in a ceremonial and culturally supported and constructed context, the sort of better outcomes for daily stress and dealing with daily life they would have on non-worship days. And that's the same model that we have applied to studying improvisational comedy. Kara uh, came to me as a specialist in um, human energetics and, and recommended or, or asked if we could, we could bring our methods together. So, so we have preliminary results that show that improvisational comedy um, has similar effects in, as what I found with Pentecostals in that if you, um, I think Tanya Lurman puts this best in my, in my experience. She's, her model is that you're going to be best at this group thing that you do. In her case, she was studying Catholic, charis, Catholic charismatic Christians, mm-hmm. um, praying to God and talking to God. The ones who were best at it were the ones who believed, trained, or practiced, and had a baseline proclivity or biological, you know, they were they were good at it, you know, biologically. So if we can we can hone in on those three things, we find circumstances people already believe because they're involved in it. We measure how much they're involved in or how much they practice, and we try to get at the biology under underlying it we can start to see uh, why these cultural practices benefit some people more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that can be extended across any model. You can, you can look at any sort of group behavior or any belief people have and, and conduct research that would have predictably similar outcomes. For health. So what do you find most challenging about your job as uh, a researcher and as a teacher? Because uh, like, is it hard to leave home and go out into the field for several weeks? Um, do you like data analysis and, and article writing? It changes. Um, I'd say when I was when I was a new assistant professor, I preferred teaching to research because I still had massive imposter syndrome or, or whatever. I was a first-gen college student and I was ABD when I got hired and I literally ran into my job from New York with three, 
I have triplet boys. So being a parent and balancing it all has been challenging. Um, they were, mm-hmm. they turned six the day, like two days after we arrived in Alabama. So I spent a lot of time uh, worrying about my credibility and I've always liked teaching. I, from, I think probably from playing in bands and working as a museum docent for many years, I really got good at thinking on my feet and being a good teacher. So I feel pretty comfortable in front of a room. I'm terrible grader. I hate grading with the passion and I'm constantly, constantly behind the ball in getting students feedback. And I, that's probably my biggest area that I am struggling to be better at. Um, there's a great book called How to Write Better, I believe, that I, I was turned on to during one of the Human Biology Association workshops, which is where I, how I met a lot of my closest collaborators. We, we started a, a writing group out of that writing workshop. And one of the books that was recommended was How to Write a Lot. And one of the things that it recommended was, one, to uh, protect your writing time, your research time, like you would your your teaching time, because no one in your faculty or anywhere would would expect you to cancel a class to mm-hmm. go to a, a meeting. So, at, and if you're at an institution where research is important, then research should also be protected in the same way. And the other thing is to prioritize students because they're at your mercy. And so don't dawdle on grading their stuff, especially if they're a co-author on a paper with you, do those edits first. Um, so that's one of the challenges I have because as I, as I have, uh, I'm, I'm tenured now, I should be going up for full probably soon. Um, I love research. I feel really good about it. I have a lot of projects that are, they have focus now. It's taken me a while to understand like what, how everything I, I look at connects together and I, and I've explained it in the course of this podcast, but that's after 10 years of trying to figure out like, why am I studying Pentecostals and then tattooing? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Um, as I've, as I've developed that confidence in research, it's become more exciting. Yeah. And consequently teaching has become less exciting. So I have to, I have to practice purposefulness um, in becoming a better teacher and paying attention to those details that can easily slip away mm-hmm. when you have 700 of them a day that you're trying to keep track right. of. Um, so I'm thinking of closing the show soon. So we're just going to bounce around with uh, a couple of other quick questions. Sure. So um, speaking of teaching, I know that you are, uh, you have a project called Anthropology is Elemental, which to me, uh, I was doing some reading on and it sounds like a great mm-hmm idea. So would you like to talk about that a bit? Sure. Anthropology is Elemental is the most important project I've ever been involved in because it, it, it really does everything that we say anthropology should do. It reaches a demographic that wouldn't otherwise be exposed to anthropology and some of the important principles that we, uh, that we suggest are important. And it was a total accident. Um, it started off as a partnership program between the university and Tuscaloosa Magnet School Elementary, where my then third grade kids were going to school, and they asked me to put together a course. And I, 
I balked because of the extra service that it would entail until I was reminded at how unique it is to have the opportunity to share what you do with your kids and how if I waited that that opportunity would pass mm-hmm. and the the four field semester long course that my grad students and I put together uh, along with Duke Beasley and archaeologists associated with our program turned out un, unbeknownst to us to be a one of a kind type of program there's we have we have yet to find another four field uh, American style anthropology program offered over a whole semester anywhere in the world. So um, it was very popular. We started offering it every semester. And then I took a few opportunities along the way to turn it into a service learning course. So a doctoral level student teaches upper level undergraduate and master students to develop uh, lessons, anthropology, anthropology lessons that they then go into the local elementary schools and teach. And we make all those lessons available online for other anthropologists. And also, we, we try to align them and point out how they correspond to Common Core and Next Generation Science Standards so that anthropology is more accessible for um, K-12 through teachers as well. Um, and when I, I, I got a Winter Grin grant a few years ago to expand that program and I had the opportunity to go to Madagascar to work with a, an elementary school there, which was a pilot cultural exchange for that program. And I saw how few resources they have over there for just basic education relative to what we have. And so when I came back, I put a lot more energy and effort into it, realizing, you know, like what a golden opportunity and what a special thing this, mm-hmm. this was. And so I'm really proud of it. But what I'm most proud of is that it has been picked up uh, by my colleagues and our doctoral students and carried with them into their jobs and into their postgraduate uh, workplaces and has um, has resonated so strongly with folks. Mm-hmm. So that's that's at um, anthropologyiselemental.ua.edu. We keep all of our, our stuff up there. Amazing. So um, because this is an archaeology podcast as well, we have one question from another patron of the podcast called Christy. And Christy wanted to ask you if you have any thoughts on uh, Otzi the Tyrolean Iceman's tattoos. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm friends with Aaron Dieter Wolf, who is an archaeologist who does, he runs the Archaeology Inc. Instagram page and who has written extensively on, on I think it's technically pronounced Ootsie, okay, but I don't. I'm not good at uh, the umlaut, but I try to get it right. But uh, Otzi, the 5,300 year old Tyrolean uh, man, is one of my favorite examples of, uh, and in fact, the oldest example of the antiquity of tattooing. So there are like hundreds of tattooed mummies around the world, but uh, 5,300 years old is the oldest that we have any evidence of. And Aaron just did a week-long Instagram um, sort of education using photos from the, what's the museum called? I think it's the Tyrolean Archaeology Museum mm-hmm. of some really beautiful pictures of Utsi and information about him that I recommend everybody check out. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, because he has, uh, you know, over 60 tattoos. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, 61. Okay. Yeah, wow. <laughs> or 63, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and they're all they're all on like they're not some of them are are they have some design elements, but they seem to match up with acupuncture marks. So there's mm. this there's so we place it at 5300 years old, but to develop this technology that aligns with what we today think of as, you know, what we know today empirically to be associated with mm. nerve plexus, like bunches of nerves where, where acupuncture needles go in are, are related to sort of activating nerves that will have systemic effects. We, we have to think that this is taking a little while for them to, to develop. And so it gives us some decent evidence for an even longer, you know, potentially much longer uh, history of tattooing mm. that we just can't see because it doesn't preserve. Yeah. So you also host uh, or co-host Sausage of Science, a podcast all about the work that scientists do, very similar to this one. What is your favorite part about doing the podcast? So what we're doing right now, I love getting, uh, so the Sausage of Science is a podcast I co-host with Kara Ackerbach. Uh, it's affiliated with the Human Biology Association. And we started it because we wanted to have an excuse to geek out and talk to people that we knew, our friends who were doing cool research, and to call up people that we wanted to know and get them to open up to us and share stories. So it's been a really, real, as you can probably attest, it's been fantastic for our professional social networking. We've gotten to know lots and lots of people um, and sort of the the uh, the hidden benefits are when you're doing this research and then you talk to people um you then tend to walk into a classroom and teach and it pops into your head and you mm -hmm. you you start to put things together in ways that you don't if you just read an article once by itself mm -hmm. so that's been great so um where can people follow you and your podcast and your research on social media yeah we're all over the place so i'm on all of the the interweb social media things um i'll stay uh, if you google inking of immunity on facebook twitter or instagram i have had a, have accounts specifically for the tattooing project sausage of science can be found on um, the Human Biology Association website or SoundCloud or anywhere you get your your podcast things. And then you can find me um, at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter or Christopher Dana Lynn at Facebook or shoot me an email at cdlynn at ua.edu. Pretty easy to find. Amazing. So, uh, and before we go, I uh, usually ask the guests for a hashtag uh, usually something related to our conversation or something related to something you're passionate about that's unique to the episode so that listeners can can use it to indicate they've they've heard the whole interview. Can you think of a good hashtag, Chris? Well, I'll use the one that for our our new our new series, which your your listeners and you should will probably find useful. We have a new feature on the sausage designs called Hackademics, which is hacks for academics. So hashtag Hackademics. Our first episode was an interview with Augustine Fuentes about uh, coming back from the field and what a struggle it is to look at your mountain of data and maybe you have to deal with that transition. Mm -hmm. um, we've interviewed Kate Clancy about gender discrimination, and we've interviewed Valerie Young about imposter syndrome. So those are, are three of our recent episodes. And I think um, in terms of knitting together the research and the importance of anthropology, some of those episodes do a great job and I hope in the future episodes do a great job of addressing the the hidden 
issues and and like some of the important hurdles in translating anthropology for ourselves as living humans and then uh, for our listeners and our, our students and such. Okay. Oh, well, amazing. Uh, all of that is great. Thank you so much, Chris, for being a guest on today's show. It's been my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. Um, listeners, if you want to find more episodes, then find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else you find podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to find out more information about the Patreon program that I run, you can go on patreon.com slash arcananthpod. And all of that information you can find at arcananth.com. Chris, come back on the show another time. I would love to. Yeah. And I will uh, speak to you soon. Sounds great, Michael. Thank you. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye.